Please be seated. I was afforded a rich blessing in childhood. Um, I was treated to a world-class education at a place called St. John's School in Houston, Texas. K through 12, khaki pants, white shirt, prep school. If any of you have seen Wes Anderson's Rushmore, I would tell you that Wes was two years ahead of me at St. John's. And the dynamic that he writes that exists between the independent school and the large public high school, separated by a chain-link fence, is an autobiographical tale that Wes writes about in the movie Rushmore. It was a magnificent opportunity in education, and though I didn't necessarily grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, I like to say I most assuredly grew up with a silver scholarship in my mouth. It was a wonderful school, and like many independent schools, it embraced and embodied all sorts and kinds of eccentricities within the institution itself. One of the rites of passage among the storied cloisters and the hallowed halls of St. John's Episcopal School was a ninth grade English class taught by an eccentric named Mike Cullinan. Mr. Cullinan was an English professor at St. John's for nearly 30 years, and he was absolutely an eccentric. If the era in which I was there is defined by the 80s, Mike was like a chapter out of the preppy handbook. He oftentimes wore Nantucket red pants with a madras plaid jacket and a crisply tied tie. And he ran his English class that all of us freshmen had to endure with an iron hand. And in his eccentricity, he ran his English class through a series of grammatical commandments. If you were to go into Google right now and you were to Google Mike Cullinan's comma rules, you would see a number of posts from alumni from St. John's School narrating or writing down, remembering comma rule C1 through C20. There were also a few semicolon rules, I think maybe four, that were denoted by S1 through S4. And in his English class, which was a typical, you know, prep school English class, reading American literary classics, and then the, the beloved or hated five-paragraph theme there was a methodology that Mr. Cullinan imposed upon all of our writing. 
When you wrote a paper for Mr. Cullinan, you, first off, you were required to type it, which back in that day was on a typewriter, not a word processor. Um, and after you finished typing the paper, you then went back with a pencil and at every comma and every semicolon that you typed, you wrote the rule, the comma rule above it. <laughs> Mr. Cullinan then received those English papers to grade. And when he graded them with his iron fist, he gave you two grades. The first grade was what he called the content grade. Like, wow, Jimmy, you're a pretty good writer. 88. The second grade that he gave you was a grammar grade. And he had a whole formula for how he scored that grade. So you would have two grades on, on the top of your paper, and for every error that you made on a misplaced, misdirected, or misidentified comma or semicolon, it was minus 15 points. There was also in his class, like many prep school communities, a measure of shame when he returned the paper to the students in class. It would go sort of something like this. Mr. Bartz, 88, content, negative 45, grammar. <laughs> Mr. Hardy, 93, content, negative 15, grammar. You were forged in Mike Cullinan's comma rules. And it lasted not just the freshman year, but all throughout your time as a student at St. John's School in Houston, Texas. And clearly by the content in Facebook alumni groups and blogs about St. John's School across the institution and the institution's memory, it is most certainly still in the forefront of the minds of the alumni from St. John's School. Now, what we know as we grow older about Mr. Cullinan was that he wasn't attempting to shame us, even if that happened from time to time, and he wasn't attempting to embarrass us, even if that happened from time to time. But the objective that he had in teaching us those rules of grammar was not just to teach us to be grammarians, but rather to teach us to become writers. True that it did not always happen, but for the most part, most of us were able to assimilate ourselves to his process. Some were dominated by it, but most of us were able to assimilate ourselves to his process in such a way that those rules 
paid a positive dividend into our education and influenced us to be better writers in the world that we find ourselves in today. Grammar was at the centerpiece of the high school experience at St. John's School. Some of you are scratching your heads right now and wondering why I am talking about English grammar at a prep school in Houston, Texas in the 80s. I am because this reading that we have from the Hebrew scriptures, this story of Moses and the burning bush, cannot be understood outside a fairly deep dive into Hebrew grammar. We just don't know what's happening if we don't have some sense of the playfulness of the use of words and Hebrew grammar that's happening. The story is familiar to us, right? Of Moses and the burning bush. It's a beautiful tale. It opens with the, with the, with the narrator saying, Moses was tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jeth- Jethro somewhere beyond the wilderness. There are two things to understand there. The first thing is Moses is identified in relationship. The identity of Moses when, when it first comes out of the narrator's mouth is that he is Jethro's son-in-law. We know that Moses is connected, that he is a part of a family. And then what we also learn is Moses is way out of his familiar context. He's not in the wilderness. He's somewhere beyond the wilderness. He is so far up in the Wind River mountain range that he is beyond the wilderness boundary. And in this experience of being identified in relationship, but also being way out of his own familiar context, Moses notices this burning bush, this bush that is aflame, but is not curiously not being consumed by the flame. And so he redirects himself to go put himself in front of this incredible, mystical, curious, somewhat cosmic sight of this burning bush. And then there's this really important detail in the story that we almost always miss because we're just reading straight through the story. It says in the story, when God saw that Moses saw the bush, then God began to speak to Moses. God is telling us in this moment 
that there are burning bushes all around us, and yet we pass them by all the time. But when we open ourselves, oftentimes that happens outside of our familiar context, when we open ourselves to the possibility of new things, they catch our attention. And when our attention is caught by the work of God in the world, then God engages us. And this thing happens. There's this exchange, this beautiful exchange that happens between God and Moses. God tells Moses, I've heard the pains and the sufferings and the sorrow of my people Israel, and I intend to liberate them from this mighty struggle that they are engaged in. And you, Moses, you, Moses, are the one who's going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And then that's the beginning of this other curious response and exchange, the very beginning. We don't really hear it unless we're carefully listening for it and we have some sense of the Hebrew grammar that's happening toward the tail end of the story. How does Moses respond? Do you remember how he responds? He responds, who am I to go and do this thing? It is a question of ontology. It's a question of his being, of his existence. And then God begins to narrate the connection that Moses has, right? And then there's this wonderful exchange that is at the very centerpiece of the identity of God in the Jewish Christian scriptures. Moses says basically like, okay, burning bush, angel of God, God, God's self, if I were inclined to do this crazy thing that you are suggesting, who might I say sent me? <laughs> Who's telling me to do this? Who has my back? And then God says, in a cosmic, mystical, confusingly grammarly way, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am who I am sent you. Or another grammatical possibility, tell them I will be who I will be sent you. There is this play happening in the Hebrew, this play on words that we need to understand here. It's so important in order to be grounded in knowing the identity of the Jewish Christian God. 
there is this play on the Hebrew verb to be, which we already know in the English language, but also in the Hebrew language and all other languages, is a quite confusing verb. It's the most often used verb. It's also an irregular verb. It's also a non-transitive verb. It is a curious word itself. And so, though it is the most frequent verb, it's one that wakes us up when we hear it. We're like, wait, this is about being. This is about existence. And the verb, um, the verb to be in the Hebrew is heyah. But what we hear in this exchange, in the I am who I am, or I, I will be who I will be, is heyah. And what we hear a few chapters later is what our our Jewish brothers and sisters call the inutterable name of God, which is a play on this same verb, is Yahweh. What we are meant to hear with our ears and feel with our hearts is that God is the breath within us. Hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. Or in this moment, hey, yeah. Hey, yeah. Or a few chapters later, yeah. Way, yeah. Way. It's a profound and cosmic and mystical statement about God, God's self, God's identity being tied to that thing that brings us to life, our breath. Maybe you feel it sometimes when you're in that yoga class and you're well-grounded, and you're soft, and you're open, and you're attuned to the rhythm of your breath, and you find yourself spiritually or mystically connected to something that is more than you. That's what this exchange is pointing to. There was a very popular German-turned-American theologian, a guy named Paul Tillich, who began to speak and write about this reality, an understanding of the ontology or of the identity of the Jewish Christian God. Tillich is a remarkable person born near the turn of the 20th century he is the son of a Lutheran pastor who becomes a theologian early in his life and then serves as a chaplain to the German army in the trenches of World War I. He experiences the height of terror, terror and trauma that any human being can experience. He comes out of the experience changed yet whole, and almost immediately as Nazism begins to rise in Germany, 
condemns Nazism. He's one of the first theologians to be canceled by the rising Nazi powers. And luckily, he's plucked up by another German-American theologian and brought to New York sometime in the 30s to become a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He is most famous in academic, both secular and spiritual academic circles for a book that he wrote called The Courage to Be. No doubt some of you were inclined or forced to read The Courage to Be in your you know, late prep school or early undergraduate careers. Tillich describes God in these words. Tillich's name out of this Jewish tradition for God is being itself. That's his word for God. And then in a wonderful move, he says, which again, matching Jewish Christian theology, he says that God is the ground of all being. And what he is teaching us when he says God is the ground of all being is similar to what Steve Earle sang to us in church a few weeks ago. What Tillich is saying is most certainly God is a part of existence and reality and our identity, but God is the ground of all being. What he is saying is what Steve sang to us when Steve sang, God is God and we ain't. There is this curious reality that we are infused and animated by God, and yet God is something holy with a W and with an H, other. Our work as people of faith is the work of discovery around that reality. Our work as people of faith is an understanding of both who God is and who we are. The very beginning of the story echoes this reality when the story says that you and I and all before and all who will come after us are made in the image of God. There is something to this existence thing that is both sacred and holy and of God and also born out of humanity, the humus, the earth, the dust, mixed with the breath of God when, when God is animating that dust that God creates humankind out of. There's another Hebrew play for the words. It's not a dude named Adam. It's Adam from Adama. Adama being earth, Adam being humanity. And then another breathy word in Hebrew, ru, ah, the wind and the spirit that animates us. So the work 
that we have as people of faith is to understand both who God is and who we are. It's simple, but it ain't easy. I would offer two pathways forward. If you are inclined to take an adventure or yet another adventure in self-discovery and theological discernment, I would offer two pathways. One is the one that we heard early in the story. It's something that I referenced last week. If you were around last week, I talked about how I'm really energized by the work of neuroscientists, especially in the research that neuroscientists are doing around trauma. And what we know about trauma is that there are events that can happen in our lives that, that inspire us in a way to re-experience that trauma. We call that in our language these days a sometimes overused term, a trigger. Something brings us back to that negative or dark or suffering experience. And triggers can even be re-traumatizing. But what we know about the shadow also exists in the light. And there are neuroscientists who are beginning to put their time and energy into the light side, too. And what they are discovering is that there is this piece of our identity where we can find ourselves so gloriously and authentically connected one to another and to something wholly other that we experience what neuroscientists are now calling glimmers. Maybe it's a glimpse of what Jesus is talking about when he says, tell them that the kingdom of heaven has passed nearby them. Or tell them that the kingdom of heaven is happening right now or very near to them. We have this experience as human beings, this idea, these moments, these, these sometimes seconds experiences when we find ourselves both utterly grounded and drifting somewhere out there in the cosmos in a beautiful and magnificent and sacred and spiritual way. And many of us who live in this place experience that when we're way up in the Alpine, right? And there's this ironic convergence of this momentary realization that we are connected to something that is so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more brightly beautiful than anything we normally see or experience. And at the same time, we are just like a little tiny grain of sand in it, like vulnerable and ephemeral, and yet being reminded of our own weakness and insignificance is an ironically powerful moment. This is a glimmer. I mention these glimmers because the first practice 
that we can engage in. If you want to take an adventure into understanding our own identity and understanding who God is, the, one of the first two practices we can pick up is a practice that I would just call noticing. And we can take a page out of Moses' playbook. We can put ourselves in places that are unfamiliar to us, into contexts that are not written on our subconscious, but have to be interpreted in that conscious moment. And in that moment, we can invite ourselves to have really soft and open hearts and really attentive and listening ears and eyes that are wide open. And I assure you in this practice, if you engage it deliberately over time, you most certainly will experience a glimmer. Noticing is one of the first indicated actions we can take as we begin another adventure in understanding who we are. And yet there's another one that I want to point out. And it connects to this reading that we have from Romans this morning. I most always never preach about two stories that we hear from the lectionary on Sunday. But there in all of Paul's convoluted, complicated, Pauline theology that is delivered to us in Paul's letter to the Romans, this is a brief moment in time where Paul is utterly clear. What Paul is leading us toward is this idea that we can practice our way into our identity. And the way that Paul is leading us to practice is through extraordinarily light side or positive actions. It's actions of compassion, actions of loving kindness, actions of reconciliation, actions of patience and open and attentive listening to the people in front of us. That when we engage in those practices, that we have this sort of calling out, this calling forward into a deeper and richer identity born out in the existence and the collaborative relationship between God and humanity. It is a very cool moment when we feel it. As I was thinking this week about how I could describe this way of like practicing our way into a deeper identity, I was reminded of the experience of when my daughter Jade was first beginning to move from, from four legs to two legs. And those of you who have children or have been exposed to children or even grandchildren, you have some memory of that moment where your child standing on two appendages maybe steadying themselves on a piece of furniture, begins to wobble enough that you think they're going to take their first steps. And we as parents 
don't necessarily take their hand in that moment of time, right? But we kneel down and we make our faces happy and soft and we spread out our hands and we encourage them to practice their way toward us. Come on, honey, you can do it. I know you can. And then they fall and we lift them back up and we put them back on their post and they kind of reach forward and we're like, no, 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 not gonna do it for you. But I am gonna be here beckoning you. These practices that Paul are inviting us into Paul is taking that posture. He's saying, I know who you are, and I know who God made you to be. And these, this listing that I have here, these are your first steps toward that rich identity. That's a lot, right? From comma rules to tillich to burning bushes to places that are even beyond the wilderness and to the deepest and softest places in our hearts. If I were leaving you with anything today, I would leave you with these two practices, noticing and practicing our way into the identity, into the understanding of who we were made to be. Amen.